You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law. With me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Nice to see you, Kyla. You've had a ridiculously busy week. Oh, my God. If you are a fan of my TikTok, you've probably already seen that I did not pee all week. Yes. Well, at the end of the day, you did. Maybe in the morning, you did. When I, but not when I, in your when time I, in court. Yeah, when I got up in the morning and when I got home from court. Well, I had a ridiculously busy week for me as a result of the fact that I was, you know, doing everything here in the office while you were, you know, busy running a trial. Well, you were absent from the podcast last week because you were in Disneyland, so we don't feel that much sympathy. Hey, I'm not looking. I'm not. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm not looking for sympathy. And then you were in the court of appeal this morning. This yeah. is Friday. Uh, that just after mm-hmm. lunchtime. Yeah. Arguing yet another driving law case, a very interesting case dealing with uh, whether an adjudicator has to consider a possible defense that is not raised in the review hearing. I think there's some statutory obligations there to do it and bearing in mind the fact that this is uh, uh, typically just an individual up against the state uh, and it's a specialized tribunal, one would think that They have to do that. But we'll see what the Court of Appeal says. The Court of Appeal doesn't uh, usually go our way. Well, we'll see. Um, I'm, uh, I'm interested to see either way what the court says um, and the implications of it once they say it. Well, even win or lose, all of these IRP cases that you conduct, um, there's almost always something in there that you can use later on. What a great transition. So often a discussion about these things. There was a case this week um, that we were not successful uh, in uh, judicially reviewing, but where we did get some helpful language. Well, unfortunate for the person. word successful. Happy for us for the uh, for the um, our further uh, practice of defending IRP. So what was the helpful language we got? Yes. So this case involved a man who um, he uh, blew two warns. Uh, into the breathalyzer uh, prior to um, uh, providing his samples in the afternoon. Um, he had two vodka sodas, um, and then he had uh, Caesar salad uh, and chicken, three glasses of wine for dinner, and then uh, eight more uh, two-ounce drinks. Um, he goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning. He kind of putters around his house in the day. And then uh, he leaves at around 1.45 in the afternoon to go to the liquor store where he's ultimately stopped by the officer. In that situation we've talked about before where officers just park outside liquor stores and pull people over. Best fishing spot ever for police officers. And in B.C. it's become a chronic thing. So he uh, argued in the review hearing that he was in ketosis and he provided um, evidence that he uses something called keto sticks. Uh, to monitor his state of ketosis, um, and the adjudicator rejects his evidence. And um, the adjudicator cites a number of reasons why she doesn't believe that he's in ketosis. But the four that were under attack in the hearing were, first, that the adjudicator had said in the hearing that it was common knowledge that white wine 
consumption of white wine is inconsistent with being on a low-carb or ketogenic diet. I don't know how that could ever be considered common knowledge. Uh, it's just so common knowledge about what different diets allow and what the carbohydrate content is of different wines. Um, uh, maybe if you drank two liters. Maybe, but I don't know. Um, B, number two um, is she... I mean, is red wine consistent with a... a Low carbohydrate diet and white wine isn't. Uh, what what kind of? I, what, not, I, I This is not common knowledge. If yeah. you walked up to people on the street and said, "Is white wine cons- uh, consumption inconsistent with a low carbohydrate diet?" What would be the answer? I guess it depends on the type of wine and how many carbs you're allowed to have. Mm-hmm. That would be my answer. <laughs> uh, so then she also said that um, because he had been drinking Diet Seven Up. That has artificial sweeteners. Again, where the evidence of that came from, don't know. And artificial sweeteners are also not allowed on a low-carb diet. Now, one thing I do know is that artificial sweeteners don't have carbohydrates. That's the whole idea. They have no calories. Artificial sweetener. (laughs) Yeah. But also, like, how would this be... How could you assert that that is the case without some evidence? Yes, And then she said that this individual wasn't in a a state of ketosis because his breath, uh, he said that his breath smelled strongly of ketones. The ketones, uh, the evidence was, have a smell similar to alcohol, but the officer didn't smell alcohol, so he must have not had ketones on his breath. Like, maybe the officer could distinguish the smell, I don't know. Um, Similar and the same are not two different things, or, or not the same thing. Oh, they're similar, but they're not the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then she said that um, he, Ms. the uh, petitioner did not uh, explain what a keto stick was that he used to test himself. Has, like, has the word keto in it. Has to be related to keto and ketosis, and I would think. And he was in a state of ketosis. So presumably that huh. keto sticks do that. It, one would think. One I would think, think. I think that's probably... Uh, easier to draw common knowledge with that language than um, yeah. the other assertions here. Anyway, um, the adjudicator's decision was upheld on two of those four points. Which two? The two, the latter two. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I also don't see the reasonableness of any of them. But um, yes, the um, uh, essentially the court agreed. They said paragraph twenty four. I accept the submission that the adjudicator's determinations on the first two points are misguided. There was simply no evidence before the adjudicator from which any conclusion could be drawn about the carbohydrate content of the wine, uh, nor about what whether diet soda is permitted on a low-carbohydrate diet. But on the third point, the ketosis taste of ketones thing, um, the uh, adjudicator said the adjudicator's decision was found to be reasonable because... The officer had said that he did not smell alcohol, that the petitioner did not provide evidence as to how he knew what ketones tasted like, or the link between the taste of ketones breath on the breath and Madison's body being in a state of ketosis. And it was not unreasonable in the circumstances for the adjudicator to reject his claim that he was on ketosis based on that self-report. So you have to explain how you know what ketones taste like because I've been in ketosis and I am taste them when I'm in ketosis. Like, it's really circular, but yeah. okay. And then the fourth point was also found to be reasonable because um, 
he didn't explain what a keto stick is, how it measures the level of ketones in the body, when he took the test or the specific outcome of the test. Just that morning, he did a urine test using keto sticks to confirm that he was still in ketosis. And the court said to the extent that the adjudicator failed to expressly address this factual assertion, which in itself contains little to no evidence of probative value on the question of whether the petitioner was in a ketogenic state when he blew into the ASD, such an oversight is, in my view, minor and in no way fundamental to the determination. And so that uh, ultimately was found to be uh, a reasonable decision because, of course... So the adjudicator was wrong, but it was, wasn't was changing the pathway to the... Conclusion, yes. So that's the sort of the most recent pronouncement from the court on the, like, the level of detail you have to get into on your ketosis if you want to make that, that ketogenic diet argument work. Well, it's a complex argument. Uh, if you know somebody who's got an immediate roadside prohibition, don't encourage them to try it on their own <laughs> because you have to get expert evidence uh, to be able to run that argument. You've got to think of all the things that you need to put in. And it's obviously instructed by those decisions where we've succeeded and not succeeded. Um, the um, And, and it, here the court is uh, basically condoning a level of analysis that requires you to flesh out all of those reasons that you think or believed you were in ketosis at the time yeah. that uh, leads up to it. And of course, it's not just the time of the testing, really, because uh, you may no longer be in ketosis at the time of the testing. It's the, uh, you've got to lay out the timeline for um, how that is going to affect the reliability of the results, which is, of course, something you've got to get out from your expert in order to have that before the tribunal. Yep, absolutely. So there you go. Now, moving on to something else, Paul, that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, red light cameras. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to see 120 more of them in the city of Vancouver? So this is a city councillor who's come out, and I just caught a bit of an interview on the radio. Um, no, it wasn't you. It was the counselor. Um, so back up to when I moved here to BC, there was photo radar, uh, photo radar was common. Um, and, um, we had a provincial election and one of the central issues there was photo radar, uh, since BC of course was, uh, was, uh, played a big role in it. And, uh, the NDP were wiped out. And Gordon Campbell became our premier and, and that was, you know, the issue. And it's pretty rare. I mean, it's never a single issue, but it's pretty rare that something that seemed so singular of an issue, uh, was, um, uh, deciding in a provincial election. Uh, and people hated those red light cameras. They were very often, uh, in locations where, um, it was pretty safe to exceed the speed limit. Uh, you'd be getting your red light ticket uh, when you were 10 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Not red light, your speed tickets, rather. They weren't red light cameras. They were photo radar. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it made people really angry. And uh, if you live in Alberta, you, you know this. I'm just amazed that Albertans put up with it and British Columbians didn't. Uh, and we've seen this unfolding in BC where now there are some more uh, speed and red light cameras. And, um, this was introduced by the NDP dangerous thing when the, uh, you know, their main competitors historically were the ones who got rid of it. Um, and, uh, people always complain that it's a, it's a cash cow and we get phone calls. I mean, we, 
defend a lot of tickets. Uh, we don't really market ourselves as defending a lot of tickets. We just get those calls and we, we defend probably more than anybody. But the um, the uh, people who call us with red light tickets, I mean, we almost always just tell them, or photo red light tickets rather, photo radar tickets, we almost always tell them, don't fight it. Mm-hmm. And here we are, we've got the city councilor and she wants to include how many more? It's going to be roughly 120 more cameras. So basically the motion is calling and it's going to be heard November 1st, um, calling for cameras to be installed at intersections where there were over 100 crashes between resulting in injury or death from 2018 to 2022. So a four-year period, over 100 crashes, what's that average of 25 a year resulting in injury or death, as well as at intersections with over 50 such crashes if they are near within a certain distance of a school. And there's a, a, an actual graphic that her um, party has produced that shows where these cameras would be. And if you look at the graphic, I don't know like how well you're going to be able to see it because it's color-coded, but um, if you look at the graphic, it's basically almost every major intersection in Vancouver. It is every major intersection in Vancouver. And when I heard uh, the counselor on the radio, she seemed particularly interested in the intersections just in her neighborhood. Uh, but then, of course, they came up with uh, with some sort of test here. And this is, you know, as you just explained it, um, basically covers every intersection, every major intersection in Vancouver um, from what is that? Uh, is that Camby Oak Street East? Yeah. Like even all the way down at like the the farthest reaches of um, of Vancouver, like the Boundary and Marine Drive, they want a camera there all the way. But weird. But it's Oak Street East. Weirdly, and only a few on and only a few on Oak Street. Yeah, and not that many in Kitts. None in Dunbar. Um, a few on Canby, but only like three on Oak Street. Although there's a bunch of major intersections like King Ed. Well, they already have cameras at some of them. Okay, but in any event, yeah, but I don't think those ones. I'm just looking at the uh, at looking at it right now. So, um, yeah, the the people on the west side are the ones who like west of Oak Street are the ones who make the largest political donations in the um, in the city. I know that from my years of being uh, involved in politics in this province, and they don't have any locations that are identified there. Well, there are none in Killarney or in Carisdale. There's none in Carisdale. In Carisdale, there are some in Killarney. Um, <laughs> Lots in Killarney, but none in Carisdale. Shaughnessy, pretty light. Yes, yeah, so um, you're pretty safe there. They're, yeah, they're so weird that they're in all the poor neighborhoods. It's also uh, in the uh, location. There, there, there's never a roadblock, or, or almost never do we get a uh, impaired driving case from that side of Vancouver either, because you never see impaired driving enforcement there. The West End, none in the West End. Yeah. Just, I like I get that it's based on ICBC crash data, but I it also like it is kind of cynical um, because it is not targeting the wealthy people who live in the nicest neighborhoods of Vancouver. It's targeting the commuters. It's targeting the people who are are coming in and going out to to the burbs or to the crappy neighborhoods like where I live. Well, it's the contractors coming from Coquitlam to uh, work on your house in Carisdale or Shaughnessy, I guess. They're the ones that they're trying to get. But here's my question. They don't how, they they don't make big donations to political parties. How a how does the city of Vancouver expect to pay for this? Like these cameras are expensive and maintaining them is expensive and it's not just the cost of 
installing the cameras, maintaining the cameras, maintaining the data, downloading the data. It's also the associated costs of like prosecuting having, tickets. having traffic court. If you think like I go to traffic court regularly and I go and I'll be there on like an intersection day and there'll be 20 or 30 people in a session for intersection enforcement um, usually three or four different intersection safety officers coming to prosecute the tickets. They've all had to review all the paperwork in advance, prepare these disclosure packages, send them to the individuals before coming to court. They also have to, um, you know, have somebody prepare a certificate. Like this is a, a massive administrative cost that isn't borne by the city. The city doesn't pay for the courts. The city doesn't pay for these officers to go and prosecute them. The city doesn't pay um, for the paperwork and the mailing. That's the city also doesn't get the revenue for, for it. Well, the city gets some of the revenue. Well, the province, I think, gets it. Well, it goes in general revenue and then it gets shared. But, but yeah. The province makes that decision on how it's right. going to be shared. Um, the other thing about it is, do these say, I mean, you know and I know and, and we don't say what it is, mm -hmm. the threshold mm -hmm. for speeding in these cameras. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know it for reasons that, you know, we know in confidence. Um, do the city councillors know it? They're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars setting up a camera there at an intersection where it, it happens that the vast, vast majority of the people going through the intersection are not beyond that threshold that would trigger a photo radar ticket. Um, you know what? I think that they probably don't know what the threshold is, but they're not worried about what the threshold is because they're looking at the 43 cameras that already exist in Vancouver and the fact that it's generating $8.3 million in revenue and going, if we can even just increase it to another 8.3, that's going to solve a lot of problems. That might buy us 100 more police officers. Yep. Just kidding. I know this is Christine Boyle's motion. She's not 100 police officer, but you know still you're uh, you're ticketing contractors from Quitlam who are coming in delivery drivers people are coming in to work mm -hmm. um and um a lot of them coming from outside of Vancouver because if you look at those intersections that they're focused on there the intersections where commuters are going through um interestingly I, I think you could probably say that most of the accidents occur um the slower accidents during the day the faster accidents at night um, you know, you could just, uh, you could just as a city councilor push for more traffic law enforcement and police officers from time to the, time. City of Vancouver managed to successfully hire a hundred more police officers. They got, I think, six mental health nurses. So that, that, uh, car 13 or car 15 or whatever it's called project that they had hoped to put a hundred of those on the road, that's not happening. So what are those hundred officers doing, Paul? They should be filling up the traffic unit, which last time I talked to a traffic section in Vancouver lead, he said they basically were decimated. They had no members. Yeah. It seems to me that there's no traffic unit right now in BC. Um, I, I have well, there, seen there's in, highway patrol and... No, I mean in Vancouver. In Vancouver, there's... Um, I, I'm I'm seeing almost no enforcement on these bright sunny days when I would expect to see some roadblocks. Yeah, it's been a long time um, it's since been, I've seen. A I have not trap. seen a speed trap in forever, and I'm yeah. driving down some of those locations. And I've, there used to always be one somewhere on my morning commute. I've driven to Richmond a number of times in the last couple of weeks. In fact, twice in the last two days, where I drove down uh, Oak Street uh, um, and uh, 
and can be no cell phone enforcement anywhere. I haven't seen cell phone enforcement in the longest time. And, and I've just been tweeting about how bad it's been. I've seen so many cell phone infractions recently, <laughs> um, that, uh, on Camby Oak, uh, you name it. Yeah. Um, Southwest Marine Drive, um, basically between, uh, between main street and, and right up to the Arthur Lang, uh, every day, uh, there's, I mean, at Broadway mm-hmm. is under construction. Between Maine and Arbutus, it's 30 kilometers an hour for significant portions of it. And people drive it like it's a challenge racetrack, like 60 <laughs> kilometers an hour. I'm the only person who's fucking driving the speed limit there. Yeah. And they're all on their cell phones. And I, I just keep looking at it thinking, where are the police? Um, I saw one officer on a motorcycle today, and it's been a long time since I saw one uh, downtown so I think they are just really, really short staffed in Vancouver, but, um, that might be something that one would think they could do. It would also generate revenue without, uh, installing cameras everywhere. hundred police officers issuing a hundred tickets each and is millions of revenue that can pay for those nurses that they really, really want. And, and let's just step back to the political thing that I mentioned at the beginning. A lot of people view photo radar as really unfair because you don't know about it. So you can't really, you can't really defend yourself till it comes in the mail. There's big signs, Paul. But you don't know that you're getting a ticket um, until it comes to you in the mail and you're trying to patch together what took place. Um, And uh, so it feels like a cash grab and, um, and a lot of people are very upset by it. And there's been a few real, really bad, notable times when they've failed to um, and not just, not in BC, but, uh, you know, times I can think of, I think it was Calgary had to give a bunch of people their money back. Um, and, uh, that undermines confidence. And so, uh, I would encourage the, uh, those people who are thinking of passing this, that, uh, they may be putting their, their, uh, political careers on the line. If that is, uh, something they feel that they really should be the one to be responsible for. Okay. No. Paul, it's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. This is really a good one. So, I mean, we have we have such so, different ones, and you know, they, a little bit of genius. There's there's not a whole lot of pattern in them. Yep. No, um, this one is outside of of any pattern. Outside of any pattern, I think quite a little bit of genius. It reminds me of something, which I'll tell you after I explain it. So, this is a Florida Uber driver. A Florida man. A Florida man. That is a common pattern. Yeah, that is there is that pattern. Um, Well, Florida's privacy laws are much more lax, which is why we get all these Florida man stories. We probably have the same type of stuff happening here in Canada. It's just that, you know, it's all in, I don't know, Sudbury. (laughs) In Sudbury. So a Florida Uber driver. uh, It's It's in Brampton. Rents an SUV and steals it. He keeps it. He doesn't give it back. And he keeps it running. For three weeks straight, does not turn the car off because as long as he has the car running, the rental car company can't remotely disable it. Which is uh, 
as I say, as you say, some brilliance. Yeah. Um, so he he rents the car. He doesn't he doesn't return it. He's got the car. He's driving for Uber. He's using it to drive for Uber. He leaves the car running twenty four hours a day as he's driving for Uber. Now Uber um, or the rental car company rather reports it stolen. Uber probably doesn't have a clue about it. He's pulled over with passengers of the car. Yeah, um, and box him in because he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop for them. Yeah, can you imagine being the Uber passenger? Um, the uh, box him in, he wouldn't stop. Eventually, they stop him, um, and uh, they find out. Yeah, he's he's never turned the car off. He's knows that he's got this. Obviously, knows it right, um, mm-hmm. and uh, has just uh, kept this rental car and kept driving. Yep, and also didn't have a valid license because, you know. Why would he? Why would you? But uh, somehow he's driving for Uber. I mean, he might have been driving under somebody else's name or something. Who knows? Uh, but uh, yeah, embarrassing for Uber, I suppose. But the uh, but really, really, in some senses, creatively stupid. Um, that what does uh, Colin and Russell have their uh, dumb criminal of the week or something like that that they do on yeah. their podcast? Yeah. Um, this is a dumb criminal. Ridiculous. But it reminded me of, uh, I don't remember what museum it was at, but we were at a conference once and we went to this car museum and they had this car that some guy had rigged back in like the 1960s. And he drove from one side of the United States to the other side without stopping. Yes. And I think this is in a museum in San Diego. Yeah. And uh, the, the Audubon Car Museum. Yeah, um, and uh, I think uh, that was uh, well, it was a DUI conference, and yeah. we went to that museum and saw that. Car. Yeah, and it was an old car. It was a like a 1920s car, uh, and the guy converted it with a toilet sort of hanging on the back, um, and so he could drive it without without. Uh, actually turning the car off and getting out of the car for the entire time. Obviously, yeah. he had to stop at some locations. Yeah, he had to stop. Traffic and things like that. But, but he didn't He didn't actually, like, park the car at any point. Like, he even had a system so he could fill it up while it was still moving. Like, he had cast canisters. And yeah. He had, like, a toaster on the side of it and stuff so he could cook all his meals while driving. It was really funny. Well, we've had the guy who was uh, who had his turntables in his... In his uh, truck his, his semi truck uh and uh that guy could just keep going yep. for a long time he's in his semi he can run his disco in the back uh-huh. um and now we have uh we have this fellow that's uh 24 hours a day for three weeks straight left his car his stolen car running i love it and obviously they could track him right yeah. they just had to figure out he was with uber uber could track him yeah not uber, hard uber <laughs> huh. Just assign him a ride and have him pick up a cop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or 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 assign him a ride with a bag. Get in while he's loading your bag in the back. Turn the car off. Yeah, I mean all of it. It's I just love it. I love the genius of it. Like if you just steal the car, like you just rent the car and never bring it back, and just keep driving it. And as long as you don't stop driving it, there's nothing they can do. Well, and you wonder like the the machinations to persuade yourself that this is okay. Well, it's okay because. You know, it's still running. It's not theft. They can't turn it off because it's still running. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, maybe he intended to fully pay the rental amount and, you know, it was just uh, exigent circumstances. It's possible. Okay. Well, there you go. That's our podcast. 
If you have a driving law-related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Thank <laughs> you.